1: once upon a time, and welcome to the Story Story Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Ann Harding, and I have some stories for you. This is a podcast to hear traditional stories told by some of the best storytellers in the world. It will take you to long ago and far away, and will bring you back safely. I went to the farmer's market to get some not-so-perfect pears to dry for the winter months. Fruit seasons throw me into full squirrel mode, and I buy boxes of imperfect fruit to dry, freeze, and eat. I just selected my box and was adjusting it on my hip when the fruit seller held out a peach. We have one of these left, if you're interested. Now, I hadn't gotten as many peaches as I wanted this year due to missing the farmer's market a few weeks a row in September. I lit up and plucked the peach out of his hand. Yes, thank you very much. "'Just make sure to eat it with other food,' he cautioned. I forgot about the peach for the rest of the day, but the next morning I woke early, started my tea kettle to boil, and noticed the treat sitting on the counter. Why not? A peach would make a lovely addition to my cereal. I brought out the granola and the milk, gathered my bowl and spoon, and then took a knife out, slicing around the seed. Holding on the two soft halves, I twisted and the peach opened. But as it happened sometimes, the pit split and opened with each half. And there, in one of the halves, curled up in the fruit, was a very tiny little boy. The teller for this episode is Jane Dorfman. Jane tells tales of dutiful daughters and wise women. Faithful sons and wicked kings of magic, skipping ropes, and Irish heroes. Of the angel Elijah and the fools of Helm. Of tricky animals and clever kids. She tells personal stories about her New Orleans childhood and her Maryland neighbors. I've had the joy of hearing her tell over Zoom and in person a few times and always find myself mesmerized. The story she's telling today is from her album... Tales from the Arabian Nights, and it is Prince Kumar al-Zaman and Princess Boudar.
0: And now we come to the hundredth and seventy-eighth night. Oh, powerful king, said Scheherazade, have you heard the story of the king who had no sons? There was once a king who had no sons. It meant that his kingdom would fall to ruins after his death. And he went to his vizier and he said, I have no sons. And the vizier suggested that he say his prayers with special fervency and that he lie with his wife and thought that surely a son would be born. And sure enough, nine months later, his wife gave birth to a son such as no one had ever seen. The child, even as a newborn babe, was as beautiful as the day. And every year he grew in strength and grace and beauty. And everyone who saw him thanked God for creating such a being. Now, when he was in his middle teens, his father, who was an old father, began to worry that he would die before his son had ascended to the throne. And he called his son to him and said, My son, I have something to ask of you. Oh, anything, father, I would do anything for you. And the boy kissed his father's hands and his father said, it is this. I wish you to marry in my lifetime so that you may take the throne. No, father. No, no. That is one thing I can never do. I have read about women. I have read about their falsity and their evilness. I have read the poets who say that a woman will open her heart to you today and her thighs to the rest of the world tomorrow. Oh, said the king, where had his son been finding such poetry? No, said the boy, whose name was Kamar al Zurman, No, I will never marry. The king was greatly upset, and he went to his vizier, and his vizier said, sire, the boy is young yet. Give him another year, and ask him again. So another year went by, And Kumar, al a man, grew in strength and beauty, and everyone who saw him went, ah. And his father again called him to him. And he ran to his father, and they embraced. And his father said, son, I would like you to marry in my lifetime. No, no, father, I have not changed my mind. I have no interest in women. He who puts his mind on women has no time for the rest of the world. I never will marry. Oh, and the father was even more upset And his vizier said, wait, wait one more year. Next time, call a great assembly together. Bring in your princes and your merchants and your captains of the army and ask Kumar in front of all these people. He will not be able to refuse you then. But Kumar was perfectly able to refuse him again. There were the princes and the captains of the army and the merchants and his father called him to him and Kumar went in a humble posture with his hands behind his back and his father said, My son, I wish you to marry in my lifetime. Kumar dropped his hands and said, Father, I have answered that question twice already. Are you slipping into your dotage? And then he looked at his father's face and he realized he had crossed the line. So the said nursling of sin, how dare you speak to me like that. Guards, bind his arms behind him and take him take him to the ruined tower and shut him in the top story. And Kumar was led away with his hands tied behind his back. He was taken to an old stone tower the Romans had built, put up on the top floor, and a staunch eunuch was set to guard the door. Kumar threw himself down on a pallet and wept for the way he had spoken to his father and the way his life was turning out, and eventually he fell asleep. Now in that tower was an old well that no one used, and deep in that well there lived a jinyana, a female jinn, whose name was Maimuna. Maimuna saw a light at the top of the tower where she had not seen a light in many an age, and she flew up to investigate and she saw the sleeping young man. She looked at his arched brows and his lips like a bow. She looked at the way his eyelashes curled upon his cheeks and his hair that was as black as a raven's wing. She looked at his long legs and his slender waist. The demon fell in love. She was so taken with him, she gave him one kiss between his eyes, and she felt she must fly into the heavens to tell someone about this beautiful being. She flew up into the heavens, and as she was flying, she collided with another jinn of much lower statue. My pardons, a thousand pardons, my lady, I meant no harm. I have just come from far away where I saw the most beautiful being in the world. Hmph. You cannot have seen the most beautiful being in the world, for I have just seen the most beautiful being in the world. No, no said the other djinn, I have come from the bedside of the king of China's daughter. She is shut in a tall tower. Mine is also shut in a tall tower. She is there because she refuses to marry. Her father has made her seven castles, all filled with treasures for her dowry. But she says, I am already a princess. Why would I let some man rule over me? And when he persisted, she put a sword hilt on the floor and pointed her breast and said, Father, if you speak to me of this again, I will throw myself upon this sword. And so... He has shut her in a tall tower. I go oh, and gaze at her every night. Maimuna still declared that her beautiful being was much better and they argued back and forth and there was no settling this argument save to compare the two side by side. So she ordered the lesser Jin to bring the princess from China back to the tower and he did in the twinkling of an eye and they lay her beside Kumar al Zerman and in fact they could have been twins. Save one was male and one was female, the same black hair, small waist, long legs, pink cheeks, long eyelashes, and the two jinns argued back and forth over which one was the most beautiful, but they could come to no conclusion. We need an uninterested party, said Maimuna, and she stamped her foot and she called up an afrit a truly hideous demon, with hair that hung in tendrils to the floor, and nails like scimitars, and he bowed before her, and he said, what may I do for you, my lady? And she pointed to the two young people, still sound asleep, and she said, which of these is the more beautiful? Oh, he looked at them, huh, they could be twins, save one is male and one is female. They compared every feature, their hair, their eyes, their shell-like ears, down to the very sweetness of their saliva, and they could not come to a decision. But I know of a way, said the Afrit. We will wake them one at a time and see who falls in love more strongly with the other. And they all thought that was a good idea. So Maimuna turned herself into a flea. And she crawled up the pants leg of Kamar al-Zerman and bit him on the thigh. And he woke up, and there was a woman in bed with him, a beautiful woman. Oh, and he was ready to throw himself upon her, but he stopped himself, for he said, this is the woman my father has wanted me to marry. <gasps> what a fool I was. Oh, I see a little ring on her finger. I will take it as a love token. And he slipped the ring off her finger and put it on his own, and the jins cast him back to sleep. "'Hm,' said Maimona, "'wake yours.' And the other djinn turned himself into a flea, and bit Princess Budar, for that was her name, on the belly. And she woke. She was not in the room where she had gone to sleep. She was not in her bed, and there was a man lying next to her. Oh, and what a beautiful man! She shook him and tried to rouse him. She said, "'Sir!' You have captured my heart. Come and take the rest of me. She grabbed him by the shoulders, but he did not awaken. She left no part of him unkissed, and still he did not awaken. She looked at his beautiful hand and saw that he had her ring upon it. Ah, oh, you have taken a little token from me. I will take one from you. And she slipped the signet ring off his finger and put it on her own. And then the gins cast them both back to sleep. Oh, said Maimuna, I guess we have settled that question. Well, said the other djinn, women's passions run hotter than men. You take that, that girl back where she belongs. So the second Jin scooped up Princess Budar and flew her back to China, and the djinn's flew out. In fact, say goodbye to them, for they fly clean out of the story. The next morning, when Prince Kumar awakened, the girl was not beside him. And he ran down and he pounded on the door and he called for the eunuch and he said, where is the girl who was here last night? Girl, sire? Where is the beautiful girl who was beside me? There was no girl. I guarded the door all night. There was no girl. And he began to beat the eunuch and he tied him with a rope and he dunked him down the well and he pulled him up and the eunuch was sputtering and he said, where is the girl? There was no girl. Down you go. And finally, to save his life and to save himself from drowning, the eunuch said, Oh, do you mean the beautiful girl? Yes, where is she? Let me go and get her. And Prince Kumar Al-Zerman pulled him up. He went out the door. He ran to the king and he said, My sire, your son has gone mad. Mm, this is your doing, the king said to the vizier. You go and see to him. And the vizier ran as fast as he could for he was an old man and he went to the tower, and there was Prince Kumar, all smiles, and he said to the vizier, tell my father I am ready to marry the girl who was here last night. There was no girl, your highness. It was but, it was but a pleasant dream, but he could not convince Kumar, who began to slap the old man and pull handfuls of his beard, and finally to save his beard, the vizier said, let, let, let me go get your father. And he ran to the king, and he bowed low, low, and he said, Sire, your son has indeed gone mad. And the king himself went to the tower, and he went up, and his son was weeping and faint, and he said, Oh, my son, where is the girl, father? Where is the girl you had for me to marry? There was no girl. Look, look, I have her ring. It is on my finger. She was here. And he fell into a swoon and a faint, and he had to be carried away. The king had him brought to a pavilion by the sea, and the king himself stayed to nurse his son who would not eat or drink, and he left the running of the kingdom to itself. But what of Princess Budar? She awakened in her own bed, but the man was not there, and she gave such a scream that people came running from all sides. Where is the man who was here last night? And her nursemaid said, A man here in this room? Oh, there never was. He was. Look, look, I have his ring. It is on my finger. And she showed them the ring, but they would not listen to her. And she began to rant and rave. And her father and the soldiers came. And when she began to rip off her clothes, they had an iron collar fastened around her neck, and they chained her to the wall. It went on like this for three years. Princess Budar chained in her tower, and Kumar al-Zuman languishing in a pavilion by the sea, and would have gone on that way forever had not Princess Budar's brother, Matawan, came home from his education abroad, and he went immediately to his sister, and he said, my sister, tell me your story, and she told him about the young man and the strange place, and she showed him the ring, and he said, I believe you. I will go and find this young man. Our father has offered half the kingdom and your hand in marriage to any who can cure you, though he will put their head on a pike if they fail to. I will find this young man if I have to go to the ends of the earth. And he set off on his journey. And he went from town to town. And in every marketplace, he heard the gossip. Princess Budar has gone crazy. She's chained up in a tower. Next market, same thing. Princess Budar has gone mad. And he Rode and he rode from town to town until he began to hear other gossip. Prince Kumar languishing in a pavilion by the sea, there is no cure for his melancholy. And he thought to himself, that is the one. And he took a ship to get to the islands where Prince Kumar's father reigned. But there was a terrible storm and the waves crashed and the ship sank, and Matawan was the only survivor. He crawled up on a rocky shore Just beneath the pavilion. And the old vizier was looking out, watching the storm, and he said, Sire, there is a man on the rocks. May I have your permission to go and get him? You may go get him, but if he looks pityingly at my son, I will have both your heads taken. And the old vizier crept slowly down the rocks, and he stretched his arm way out till Matawan could grab his hand, and he hauled him up. And he was brought into the pavilion, and bathed and dressed in order to see the king. But the vizier said to him, I have saved your life. Do not cost me mine. Cast no pitying glances at the young prince. And Matawan was brought in, and he bowed low to the king, and he thanked him, and out of the corner of his eye, he looked at Kumar al-Zerman, and he said, Ah, they could be twins. And he began to recite a love poem, as was the custom when you were brought into someone's house. You provided some entertainment. And it was a long poem about lovers separated and lost from one another and broken hearts. And at the sound of this poem, Kumar al Zerman opened his eyes and he beckoned the young man closer. And when Matawan was so close that he could kneel down and whisper in Kumar's ear, he told him, I come from she who you love, and she loves you and I have vowed to bring you together. Kamar al Zaman opened his eyes all the way, took his first hopeful breath in years, and asked for some soup. His father was overjoyed, and when the soup was brought, he said that only the stranger could feed him. And Matawan sat beside him and spooned soup into his mouth. And then Kamar thought that he might take a little wine, and he held the cup close so that the prince could take a sip. And then he began to regain strength, and he and Matawan were together constantly, and he told the prince stories all about his sister, Princess Budar. Now when he was strong again, they made a plan. Prince Kamar would ask to go hunting in the desert only with Matawan. And the king agreed, for he could refuse his son nothing. He never could. He said, but my son, stay only one night, for I cannot bear to be parted from you.
1: The fairy tale sponsor for this episode is Arachne's Weaving and Tailoring. When the gods have visited their wrath upon your fine clothes, when the rug at thy door is worn with the trampling of feet and the scraping of shoes, take thyself down to Arachne's Weaving and Tailoring. Arachne might have angered Athena, but she makes penance each day by weaving the highest quality cloth and clothes fit for gods, demigods, and mortals like yourself. Clothe yourself and your family in the highest quality fashion and clothes. For unto all, she and her multitude of children will create and weave the finest in the land. This episode is also brought to you by the new Patreon supporter, Marvelous Megan, who, in addition to being marvelous, Megan has the ability to play music on icicles. When the winter has blown in and the icicles are hanging from around the house, she will take out a special tiny glass hammer given to her by Jack Frost himself, and she will play for you music that would make the trees consider blooming early. Marvelous Megan is also a generous supporter of storytelling, which is pretty cool. A big thank you to her and all the other patrons of the podcast. Be like Megan. Become a patron for as little as $4 a month while getting some sweet perks and rewards. And to all of those who are patrons, you are the cozy pillow after a long, hard day at work. I knew my stories. This was just like the story Momotoro, the peach boy from Japan. The little, very little boy sat up in the peach and blinked. He was dressed in soft, peach-colored clothes, and he immediately began looking around and squirming, so I lowered the peach to the counter. The moment he stepped out, he was an inch taller. He was looking at the fruit in my hand, and I gave it to him. It was so big, he could barely wrap his arms around it, but he sat down and began eating the fruit. So I joined him and ate the other half. It was sweet like summer. When he was done with his half of the peach, he was covered in peach juice and was as tall as my tea kettle. I filled up the sink with warm, soapy water, and he jumped in and began splashing around. I got a hand towel from the bathroom, and when he climbed out of the sink, he looked hungry and a little taller again. I set him on the table and poured him some cereal. The spoon was like a shovel in his hand, but he seemed to know how to wield it to get the food to his mouth. He finished one bowl, then a second, then a third, and that was all the cereal I had. But he still looked hungry. I made him six eggs while he walked around the house. And by the time I was done, he was as tall as a five-year-old. I was relieved that his clothes were growing with him, as I did not have any kids' clothes. He ate all those eggs, and when he was done, he was as tall as a ten-year-old. I looked in the fridge, and the fastest thing I could make for a hungry growing boy was spaghetti. So I did. I boiled a whole package of noodles, poured an entire can of sauce over the bowl, and sprinkled on about half a block of cheese. The now teen peach boy leaned over the bowl and ate and ate and ate, and when he was done, he was as tall as I was and sprouting a little bit of hair on his chin. Do you have a sword? Those were some strange first words, but I did not have a sword, but I did have a broom. I gave that to him. He set out to seek his fortune, and I waved him off in the early dawn. I was closing the door when my husband came down the stairs. Why does it smell like spaghetti? I'll tell you over breakfast, but it will have to be French toast. Our peach son ate all the cereal. And now for the second half of Jane Dorfman telling Prince Kumar Al-Zaman and Princess Budar. So they both rode fine horses, and they had a
0: dromedary to carry the supplies, and they rode far out into the desert. And when they came to a crossroads, Madawan asked Kumar for his robe, and they killed a gazelle, and they sprinkled the blood on the robe, and they put it in the crossroads and rode back and forth over it, for they knew that the king, a loving father, would surely follow them if they did not return after one night. And off they rode for Madawan's home. We will disguise you, said Madawan, as an astrologer and a physician, and you can say that you are here to cure Princess Budar. So they bought him a robe embroidered with stars and moons, pockets full of potions and herbs and a tiny scale. And he went into the town, and there were indeed the heads of young men hung on pikes all around, and Matawan hid himself. And he went into the town square, and Kumar announced, I am here to heal Princess Budar, and everybody said, Shhh, for they did not want to see that beautiful face on a pike by the gate. But he persisted, and eventually he was brought before the king. The king said, do you know what happens if you do not cure her? For even he did not want to see that beautiful young man, his head on a pike. Kumar al-Zaman assured him that he felt he could cure the princess. So a soldier was assigned to lead him to where Princess Budar was, in a tall tower chained to the wall. Don't hurry, said the soldier, are you eager to meet your death? but Kumar was eager to get to the princess. And when they got to the top of the tower, there was a curtain separating her bedchamber from the anteroom. and Kumar asked for parchment and a pen. And he wrote out a long love poem, and he added two stanzas at the end. And they said, Some time ago, I took a ring of thine. I bring it back. Please give me mine. And he folded up her ring in a corner of the parchment, and he had the soldier bring it to her. She read the poem, and when she got to the end and the ring dropped out in her hand, she braced her feet against the wall, pulled the chain loose, broke the collar, and ran out to meet her love. And they embraced so long and lovingly, it was thought best they get married that very night. They lived happily, for they were together at last. And then Kumar had a dream about his old father. Who, when word had come to him of his son's death, had thrown ashes and soot upon his head and put the entire kingdom into mourning. And he asked Princess Budar's father for leave to go and visit his old father. And since his wife could not bear to be parted from him, she went too. They were richly equipped. They had many strong mounted men, beautiful silken tents, and a litter with silken curtains. "'for Princess Budar and one little maid "'to do her hair to ride in. "'And they traveled for some days, "'and they came to a lush green meadow "'with plenty of food for the horses, "'and they set up the tents to spend the night. "'The next morning, Kumar arose early, "'and he went out to see to the horses, "'and when he came back, his wife was still asleep. "'She was lying, and she looked so lovely "'he thought perhaps to tickle her awake. "'But when he tickled her across her belly,' He felt something hard and when he looked there was a glowing red stone knotted in the sash to her pajamas and he took it out and he said what a curious thing she must hold it very dear to keep it in such an intimate place and look there is writing on it but but it's too dim for me to read it and he took the stone out into the sunlight And he was holding it up to the sky to read the words on it when down came a great bird caught the stone up in its talons and flew away. And Kumar gave chase. And he ran through brush and grass and gullies and always the bird was just a little bit ahead of him. And he ran and he ran until he was quite lost. And when night came he gave up and he threw himself down beneath the tree to sleep. And the first rays of the morning sun woke him. And there was the bird sitting in the tree. And as soon as he stood up, the bird took flight and flew ever forward. Ah, it is strange! said Kumar. The bird seems to know how tired I am, and he flies less fast. The bird flew and flew until in the distance, Kumar could see a walled city. And when they got closer, the bird flew right over the wall. Kumar knelt down before the gate, said his prayers, and then went inside. He looked on every rooftop and spire and tree, and he could not find the bird. And he walked and he walked every street in the town until he came to the other entrance. The people there were dressed differently. There was not a Muslim in sight. But when he went out the far gate, he saw an old man sitting on a bench in front of an orchard. The man looked at him and said, You are far from home, for I can see you and I are of the same faith. There are no Muslims here. There are only far, far away cities that a boat must be used to get to. I cannot see how you got here. Sit down and tell me your story. Kumar told the old man about his long separation from his wife and their joy at being reunited and of the curious stone and the bird. And the man said, That is such a story. I cannot see how you even walked to this town, but there is a boat comes. Once a year, it has just left, my son. Why don't you wait here? Work for me for a year, and then you will surely be able to go and find your wife. Kumar could see nothing else to do, and so he began to work for the old man in the orchard. He pulled the weeds, and he trimmed the trees, for it was an olive orchard and he slept every night in a shed and wept about his lost wife. But what of Princess Budar? She woke up in the silken tent. She was alone. She stuck her head out, and all the men turned to smile at her, but she did not see her husband. Where can he have gone? He cannot even bear to be a foot away from me. I do not see him. I cannot tell those men that I have lost my husband for... They will become emboldened with me and at the very least they will take me back to my father's harem. No, we must go forward. Do you remember that I told you that they looked exactly alike? She put on her husband's clothes, his tunic, his pants, his boots. She wound his turban around her head and then she stuck her head out of the tent again and commanded the men to have the litter brought. She put the little serving girl into the litter. And then she went out and mounted Kumar Al-Zerman's fine horse. She commanded the men to break camp and they got underway. She rode at the head of the troop and she looked constantly right and left thinking that she must see her husband coming to her across the plains, but she did not. And they rode for days until they came to the outskirts of a fine city with many towers. They made camp And the king of that city sent out an emissary to see who this fine silken tents belonged to. And he came back, and he reported to the king that it was a young prince from a far land who had lost the road. And frankly, sire, he is the most beautiful man I have ever seen. The king invited him for a feast. And they ate, and they drank wine, And the king began to like this young man more and more. And finally, towards the end of the evening, he patted him on the hand and he said, I am an old man. I have not been blessed with sons. But I have a daughter, Hayat al-Serman, who is your equal in beauty. I would like you to marry her. Princess Budar thought, I cannot now tell him that that I am a woman. He will surely tell my men and they would likely kill me she could see no way forward but to marry the princess and so princess budar disguised as kumar al-zaman married hayat it was the wedding it was the wedding of both their dreams now on the wedding night hayat was in the wedding chamber and kumar al-zaman came and he kissed her between the eyes and then he knelt down to say his prayers And he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, until he was sure that Hayat had fallen asleep. And when he was sure, he crawled into bed with her and slept. The next morning, Kumar, really Princess Budar in disguise, leapt out of bed and went down to the audience chamber. As the new king, he settled disputes between the merchants. He relieved them of some taxes. He settled land arguments, and they all agreed, we are very fortunate in this new king. And the second night went much as the first. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed until his new wife went to sleep. And after the second night, Hayat's mother came and said, so, how was it? And when Hayat told her that nothing had happened, she was dismayed. She went to the king, and he was even more angry that his beautiful daughter should be treated in such a way. He said, I don't care how good-looking he is. If this marriage is not consummated by tonight, I will pull him off the throne and send him back to his own country. And so on the third night, the chamber was lit with candles. Incense was burning. Hayat was dressed in a lovely gown. And she waited for Kumar, and she did not let him start praying. She said, you are a beautiful young man and certainly pious. I did not know beautiful people were so self-centered. I do not tell you this to make you desire me, for I think that is impossible. But my father says, if this marriage is not consummated tonight, he will take you from the throne and send you back to your own country. Now Princess Budhar looked at Hayat who was a lovely girl and seemed a kind and reasonable person. And she thought, can I trust her with my secret? She decided there was no other way. So she told Hayat her story. She told her about her love of Kumar and their separation and their marriage and his strange disappearance. And she told the story so movingly that Hayat began to weep. And she promised that she would keep it as a secret locked in her heart a place that only she had the key to. And that night, the two women slept in each other's arms. The next morning, they killed a rock dove that was on the ledge, and they put the blood on Hayat's thighs. And when her mother saw that, there was much celebration and ululating, and the whole city celebrated and flowers were strewn. And so it went. The two women would spend the night together, and Kumar al Princess Budar in reality, would sit as king during the day. Now Kumar Al-Zaman was still working in the orchard and he worked so hard every day but he was lying down one day resting under an olive tree when two birds came through the garden fighting viciously. In fact one bird pecked the head off of the other one and then flew away. Two more birds came, and they stood beside the little body in every aspect, looking as though they were grieving. And then they scooped out a little grave, pushed the bird's body into it, and patted it down with their feet and flew away. They came back soon, harrying the aggressor bird between them until they killed it, and they laid his body on top of the grave as if it were a grave offering. Now, Kumar was amazed to see such strange behavior, when all the birds were gone, he went over to look at the grave, and in the bird's body, in its crop, was something red and glowing, and when he picked it up, it was the red stone. Oh, he said, this is surely a sign that I will be reunited with my wife. And he went back to work with great vigor, and while hoeing, his hoe went through the ground and made a curious thunk, and when he scraped away the earth, there was a wooden door, It led to a chamber that was filled with jars full of gold. He hauled them out one by one. There were 50. And he offered to share them with the old gardener who said, No, no, it is almost time for the ship to come. You will need that money to find your wife. Kumar decided that he would put olives on top of the gold coins so that they might ship them safely. He put olives on top of one jar, And when he came to the next, just on a whim and for safekeeping, he put the red stone and then the olives. And he sealed up all the jars, and they told the ship owner that they would be shipping 50 jars of olives. The sailor said, we'll sail with the tide, we cannot wait, you must be there. They took the olives on ahead. But that very night, the old gardener fell ill. He had a high fever, he was delirious, he was calling Kumar his beloved son. And as Kumar sat with the old man's head in his lap, mopping the sweat, the sailors came. He said, I cannot leave him. We cannot wait. And so the ship sailed without him. Kumar was more despondent than ever. But that ship was going to the very place where Princess Budar was reigning as king. It was always a great occasion when a merchant ship came and they went first to the castle to tell them what the cargo might be. And when they said it was olives, she had not had olives in so long. She said, I will take the entire cargo. Wonderful, said the merchant. I will give you a good price for the owner was not able to accompany his goods. The olives were brought to Princess Boudar's private chamber and she greedily opened the first one and was surprised. That under the first few olives there were pieces of gold. And when she opened the second one, she found the red stone. She knew whose cargo this was. She sent her soldiers down to drag the merchant back, and she said, The owner of these olives has done me a great injustice. Bring him back to me, and you will remain in our jails until he is delivered. So the merchant sent his ship flying back to where they had gotten the olives, and as it was empty, it made record time. The sailors ran to the orchard. They grabbed Kumar al-Zaman, despite the fact that he said he did not know the king, let alone had done him any injustice. They dragged him to the ship, hogtied him, and threw him in the hold. And they sailed back, and he was dragged through the city and to the chamber of Princess Budar. Now she had told Hayat that she thought she would soon be reunited with her husband and she would make a story that would be retold for generations to come. Kumar was dragged before the king and he was so afraid that he did not even dare look him in the face. The king rewarded the merchant, released the ship and then ordered his attendants to take Kumar to the baths and gave him rich robes to put on. When Kumar was brought back before the king, his eyes still cast down upon the floor. The king greeted him warmly. He was dressed in beautiful robes. His hair was oiled. He was irresistible. He stood before the king, and the king said, I have set aside lands outside the city for you, herds of horses. I have rich robes for you. And Kumar thought to himself, Why is he rewarding me? These are the gifts you would give an old and trusted advisor. He he does not even know me. And finally he spoke, Sire, I do not know why you would lavish these gifts upon me. I only seek your leave, freedom to go and look for my wife. The king came and stood beside Kumar and put his arm around his shoulder and gave him a little squeeze. And he says, I give you these gifts because I am in love with you. Oh, sire. Oh, oh, no, sire. No, no, I I do not do these things. It is all right, said the king. Some men prefer a willow and some a pomegranate. I am, after all, the king. No, sire, said Kumar. It it is a sin. You are not even in your majority yet. Allah will forgive you. And Kumar saw that he was in the power of the king, and he was led into the bedroom, and he was bid undress and climb into bed, And the king followed in after him. And Kumar was blushing hotly and weeping by this time. And then the king told him, slide your hand down a little lower. And Kumar did as he was instructed. And then he was puzzled. He said, sire, you do not seem to be equipped as other men. And then Princess Budar began to laugh. And that laughter Kumar recognized. And he looked, and there was his beloved wife. And they embraced a long and loving time. And then he said, Oh, my dearest, why did you play such a cruel trick upon me? (laughs) Do not chide me. I only did it to increase our enjoyment. And after the lovemaking, she introduced him to Hayat. Hayat is my wife. She has kept my secret. She has saved my life. I would like that you take her as a second wife. No, let Hayat be the first wife, and I will be the second wife. And Kumar was agreeable. And they went before Hayat's father. And when they had finally convinced him that this man was really the husband of the one he thought was his daughter's husband, and he got that all straight in his head, he agreed that it was a story, such a story. It should be engraved on plates of gold. And he also agreed that Hayat should marry Kumar. And so they did. And Kumar loved both women and spent one night with one and one night with the other and treated them equally. Now I wish I could tell you that this was the end of their troubles and that they lived happily ever after. But this is just the first half of a story called Kumar al-Zerman and his two sons. And as you see, we have only now gotten to the two wives. But that is a story for another night.
1: Thank you for listening to the Story Story Podcast. Show the love. Find Jane Dorfman on the internet. Tell her you heard her on the podcast and now want to hear her tell more stories. Go find your favorite tellers from the podcast and discover what they can bring to your home. If you have questions or comments, send them to storystorypodcast at gmail.com. If you send us an email... Let me know the favorite story you have heard or the favorite stories of your childhood. Who knows? Maybe you'll hear them here soon. The Beautiful Brains by the Fairy Tale sponsor was inspired by the spiders who have been seeking refuge in the house from the cold. The inspiration for the true fairy tale was the box of pears that I'm drawing and the sorrow that I missed a little bit of the peach season. The music is by Poddington Bear. This podcast is made possible by patrons like you consider becoming a patron or joining the mailing list to get podcast goodies or writing a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps other story lovers find and enjoy the show. You will hear more stories next week, but until then, live happily ever after.
0: Mary Kate opened up the
1: door, and there on the doorstep, wrapped in his own blanket, and to this day, Anansi spins webs so that he can catch the flea, the fly, and the moth that got away. If you go down to the lake on a clear day, when the water lies as calm as a sheet of glass, you can still see the rooftops of the castle glittering in the sunlight. And if you listen really closely, you can even hear the festive music from the royal court.